Hey, everybody, and welcome to the UFC 241 Aftermath. Uh, what a fucking night of fights. I mean, Saturday night was incredible. There were some great bouts all through the prelims. The main card was fucking outstanding. Great fights on that. Um, before we hop into the main card and what I think is going to come next for some of these fighters and stuff, uh, I want to talk about two performances on the prelims that really stood out to me. Um, the first being Corey Sandhagen. Corey Sandhagen, ranked number nine in the world. A lot of, I mean, don't get me wrong. He was a big favorite going into this fight. There's a lot of hype around this kid. He's very talented. But he goes in and dominates the number three ranked bantamweight in the world in Hafaiala Sunsau. It doesn't just happen by accident. You know, like this kid has a lot, a lot of promise. And I don't think it'll be that long before you see him challenge him for a title. I think it's inevitable that he holds it someday. It's just a matter of, is he ready now? But I'll tell you what, man. He passed that Hafaiala Sunsau test with flying colors. You don't do that. Like I said, you don't do that to a Sunsau in action. He's a black belt. And I think, I think a lot of people favored Corey on the feet going into this fight just because of his ability to switch stances. He's so fluid. And I think, I really think when you look at that, that's the future of MMA. I mean, it, it seems so... As kids start to learn this from a younger age, I'm pretty sure Corey's one of those guys who's like you're getting. He, he's been groomed for this, right? Uh, he's been training martial arts for a very long time, and I, I think that in the future, if you're not able to switch stances fluidly, if you only fight out of one stance, you're going to be severely limited in the ways that you can vary your attacks compared to other people who can do it. So I think, I really think that fighting out of both stances is going to become more common here in a few years, and he's one of the prime examples of he's kind of a trailblazer. I mean, he just does it. It's like he fights equally well out of both stances. And a lot of the times what you'll see is when you see guys who do switch their stances, they'll oftentimes fight better defensively out of one stance and offensively better out of another stance. So it's more tactical that way. But it's like when Corey switches stances, he's doing it on his entries and he's doing it on his way out and he's coming back in and sniping you from a different stance than he started the combination. And it's like he's just so fluid and his footwork is perfect. He's never out of position on things. And... To top that all off, Rafael Sunsau was a black belt, a high-level black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And I think everybody thought that when they got into those exchanges, he was going to have an advantage over Corey. And Corey stood up to everything that a Sunsau threw at him, man. I mean, he looked great. He was he, he, Every time they would get into a grappling situation, Corey would reverse it and end up on top or be able to survive some dangerous spots and quickly escape the position, return to his feet, and start dotting a Sunsau back up. I mean... I thought it was a brilliant performance by a kid who still has a lot of room to grow. I mean, this is a kid, he, he has a lot of potential still. I don't think he's anywhere near what he's fully capable of, and he's, he, he just beat up on the number three guy in the world. Um, I think you're probably going to see him fight a guy like Marlon Marias next. Um, I wouldn't hate a fight without Jermaine Sterling. Um, I don't know if he's already booked for anything, but I think that would be a good fight. I mean, he, Corey Sanhagen's the real deal, and I think it's, it's a matter of time before he holds a, fight, a, a title. You know, I just think he's also like when you look at Cody, who was this promising prospect and held the title, and you find out that Cody's kind of explosive and obviously explosive, right? I mean, he knocks people the fuck out, but when he starts fighting some of these higher level guys, he kind of makes mental mistakes, um, kind of gets too committed to things. And what you saw in Corey Sandhagen tonight on Saturday night was just calculated, measured. Everything looked great, man. I thought it, it was brilliant, especially because he came off kind of, I don't want to call it lackluster. But I don't think the fans enjoyed the fight against John Lineker, which I thought he clearly won that fight as well. But this was dominant, and he got to really display to the fans on ESPN what, what he's capable of. And he, he's got a big frame for that division. And that long frame, man, seems to be – it seems it has so many advantages in fighting because it, 
it allows you to create a lot of space on the ground and it allows you to control distance and keep people at bay and keep tagging them with the end of your punches. And if you can keep them there, that's the pro- that's the game, right? If you can keep them there, it's it's going to be very hard for them to to get inside of you and land on anything. And I just think that Corey control his understanding of distance and timing is brilliant. And he's one of the more prosperous. By the way, that 135 pound weight class is a fucking shark tank. I think it's the second best division in the UFC behind lightweight. I mean. Uh, granted, TJ Dillashaw pops, right? But you got Aljamain Sterling, Marlon Marais, Henry Cejudo. I mean, there's a bunch of killers up top there, and Corey Sanhagen just welcomed himself into the top three, so he's going to get a big fight next. And uh, He trains out of Easton. I'm not going to put on a facade like I know the kid, like I've ever talked to him or like I've ever rolled with him or anything, but I've seen him at the gym before, and he's – I mean, it's cool to see someone who trains at the same – I'm a white belt, by the way. I don't want to put – like all the stuff you're getting from me, by the way, is just fans' perspective. Like, I train and I try my best to understand it and I have respect for the fighters and all that, but don't take anything I say too fucking serious because I don't have any, like, credentials to back it up. But I, it's cool to see somebody like that who trains at the same place that you do just kind of exceed and, and not, not just exceed, but perform at that level. I mean, that was a high-level performance. So uh, I'm very excited to see what the future holds for him. And the second fight I want to talk about was the featured prelim of the night between Kama Worthy and Devontae Smith. So... I'm originally from Oil City, which is about an hour and a half north of Pittsburgh, which is where Kama Worthy's from. He comes into this fight. He's friends with Devontae Smith. He gets the fight on five days' notice. I think he accepts it. Has to cut a whole bunch of weight. Just fought three weeks ago. So, you know, like, you got to go through a camp for that and get prepared. Um, I guess there are arguments both ways on that. A lot of people think that, like, if you fight recently, you'll be fresh and more active and you'll, you're, you're kind of crisp. Like, you just got tuned into a fight. So, when you step in, it's not a big deal to adjust to a real-time situation. Fucking regardless, he comes into this fight. Devontae Smith has been knocking people, and not just knocking people out, knocking people out in the UFC. I think he was on like a four-fight UFC winning streak where he was knocking everybody out. Kama Worthy comes in as a plus 650 underdog and fucking smokes him in the first round. And uh, that's big, man, because I know like guys like Charlie Brenneman have come out of the like Pennsylvania area, but like it's it's not like Pittsburgh's a hotbed for martial arts. Like it's just not there yet. I know there's some really good gyms in the area. Like, I started, cl- I started training at Clarion MMA. And uh, when I first started there, they had their uh, – they, the, they were under Jean-Jacques Machado, and they've recently transitioned. Now they're under Robert Drysdale with Zenith Jiu-Jitsu. I know you've got Stout in Pittsburgh. There's uh, is there a Factory X gym somewhere in Pittsburgh. They're good gyms. It's, you just don't see really elite fighters coming out of them yet. So it was nice to see someone come in and represent Pittsburgh in, like, northwestern Pennsylvania and come in and – flatline a guy who was I mean there was there wasn't really supposed to be a chance that Kama Worthy won this fight and he proved the whole world wrong and you got to be happy for a guy like that man I mean especially you know you feel some sort of connection from him because he comes from the same area as you I guess but or like just a sense of pride right because like I said I mean if you think about the places that are hot for MMA it's like California you know you got places like aka um New Mexico uh New York but you don't really hear about these guys coming out of these Pittsburgh gyms and smashing people on the UFC level, you know? So, very cool. I'm excited to see what the future has for this guy as well. I'll be uh, definitely paying attention to him throughout his career. What a brilliant performance. And uh, hats off to him for coming in and kind of proving the world wrong on Saturday night. It was awesome. Um, all right, so the featured prelim wraps up, right? You kind of get like this big shocker and it sets you up for the main card. And then we go into Derek Brunson versus Ian Heinish. And this was a fight where when I broke this down, I really thought that one of the keys to victory for Brunson was going to be a calculated fight. 
he has to slow things down. I don't, I, I, and I mean, one of the things with Brunson is he, he can get wild, man. I, I, I categorize him as an emotional fighter. He, uh, he smells blood. Sometimes he'll clip you with a punch and it'll hurt you, but it won't really rock you. And he'll capitalize on it and go all out and it ends up costing him, man. I think, so I think that he, and what I liked a lot is throughout this fight, uh, First off, I was completely wrong on something that I have to fess up to. I thought Ian Heinish being a Colorado State champion and wrestling and stuff in high school and all that, I thought his – Derek Brunson had a very, a very, very clear advantage when they were grappling. Um, he was controlling almost all of the exchanges. And uh, it really saved his ass in the beginning of the fight when Ian Heinish clipped him. <laughs> I mean, within like the first 10 seconds, I was like, well, everything that I thought about this fight was going to go out the window because I had given the advantage to Brunson on the feet and thought Heinrich might have a grappling advantage. And it was kind of the opposite. I mean, it was back and forth in times. It was a great fight. But uh, I really like Brunson's composure. I don't think it was – I think if he fights like that more often and he can find that balance, he has potential to be a really talented – I mean, he, he already is obviously enormously talented. He has crazy knockout power. He's been in some great fights. Goes out and beats this Ian Heinrich kid who was – I mean, he was a slight underdog against them. Brunson's talented. I just think that he could be so much better if he's more calculated. And I think that you saw some moments where he would clip Heinish and Heinish would get hurt. And Brunson, you could see him like wanting to get, you would almost see his eyes light up. Like he smelled blood and he wanted to go after it. And he was like, all right, dial it back. Started to fade a little bit in the third round, but all in all, I like that fight from Brunson. And that's kind of the first time that you saw Brunson implement that strategy of being calm and stuff. So I think as that starts to go on, and the more that he starts to fight like that, the more he'll kind of find his footing and find that balance of power and calculation, right? Like, you, you can't go too far one way or the other. I mean, like, the thing with Derek Brunson is that he does have spectacular one-punch knockout power, so you don't want to take that away from him. You don't want to tell him not to throw that stuff. But it does, I mean, measured chaos, right? Measured violence. It has to be calculated. Um, I think if you continue to see Brunson fight like that, even if he loses a couple, even if he loses a fight, wins a fight, I think he'll eventually get in a rhythm and start being able to make a run again in 185 pounds. I really believe that. Um, it's just a matter of whether he's going to be able to put the whole puzzle together. I feel like he's got pieces laying on. They're just missing. Little things are missing. Little things here. Little things there. A little bit of cardio here. You're extending your energy too much in situations where you shouldn't be. He cleans that up. He's still a problem at 185 pounds. Great performance by him. Uh, like I said, I, I liked what I saw. I think that it, it was a different style of fight for him, so it, it, it didn't look brilliant. But I think that as he settles more into that style and starts to slowly like process things and just get used to that, I think you'll really see. I think you'll really see some leaps in Derek Brunson's games because I think he's got a lot of skills that just don't quite shine through because of the way he fights sometimes. All right, so then you move on to Sadiq Yusuf and. Uh, Gabriel Benitez, and they both hurt each other a couple times, but this one kind of went how I expected. I mean, Sadiq Yusuf just has immense power when he sits down on his punches. And I kind of thought that one of the things that would benefit Benitez might be that he would stay at range and kind of throw stuff straight down the center and be able to pop Yusuf with small stuff. And then it would, don't get me wrong, Benitez has power. But I thought that Yusuf likes to throw a lot of hooks. He counters a lot. He likes to wait for guys to come in on him. And, uh, he throws with a lot of conviction. So I thought that the smart game plan for Benitez would be to go in, feel things out, like kind of measure the distance, and he's got, you've got to feign at Yusuf and draw counters out of him and then counter, come over top of his hooks and stuff. Uppercut, mixing things up. and I mean, granted, that's easier said than done. Yusuf looked fucking great. And I think that you, 
Yusuf's a guy who is so powerful that you kind of have to earn his respect early. If you don't earn his respect, I think he realizes that he's in control because initially, I mean, just based off his resume, I think he's going to go in with the assumption and the confidence that he has the power advantage. And he does a lot of the times. And, man, when he knocked Benitez out, it was brilliant. I mean, and again, sits down on his punches, countering, and just lands this massive hook and puts him down. So great fight for Sadiq Yusuf. That's kind of how I expected it to go. I thought we'd. See, I thought it was. Fin- I thought it was going to go longer than that because I thought, I thought Benitez would be more patient. I thought you'd see more feints from him. I thought you'd see him try to draw the counters out of Sadiq and make reactions that way. But uh, I don't know, man. I think it just. I also think that Sadiq started a little faster than he does traditionally, so that might have kind of played into Benitez's. Uh, you know, might have threw him off a little bit. Either way, great performance by Sadiq Yusuf, and we're going to be talking about this kid a lot. I mean, he's got incredible knockout power. His hands are so fucking fast and. Excellent counter. Um, all right, so now we move on to the fight of the night between Yoel Romero and Paulo Costa. And oh, what a war. But a lot of people that I've been – I've been reading comments and stuff through on like the UFC's posts and stuff about the decision and just people buzzing about it on you know, Instagram, Twitter, whatever. And a lot of people think that Yoel Romero got robbed. And I'll tell you what, man, I don't think he did. I, at least not based off the current scoring system. You got to understand that the body shot, like also, okay, one thing at a time here. All right, let me, let me slow down. Okay, so the body shots for Costa were adding up in the first and second round especially. And he also dropped you well. He hurt you well. Like the, the first two rounds were not rounds that you could get upset about Costa winning. You know, I think that you, if this decision had gone either way, I personally would have been fine with it. I thought that both guys um, implemented parts of their game plan very well, and both guys did things to shut down the, the, their counterparts' game plan. You know, it, it was a very difficult fight, and Yoel's not an easy guy to, he, he's not an easy guy to put away. And I know that he hurt, person, this is how I personally scored it. I thought Yoel Romero did more significant damage in the... I would have to go back and rewatch it, but I thought Yoel won the first just barely. I felt like Costa probably won the second, and then I felt like Yoel dominated the third. Okay. Okay, sorry for the pause. I had to go answer my phone real quick. But, um... Okay, so let's talk about scoring and how I think it... Because, like, like I said, Yoel Romero is not somebody who benefits from the 10-point must system whatsoever. Um... I, per- I personally felt like the first two rounds were very close, extremely close. And the third round was controlled primarily by Yoel Romero. So let's talk about the issues with the current scoring system. Because when I look at this fight, I think that I can under... If you're going round by round, right, I can understand how you gave the first two rounds to Costa. I really can. He did some great body work. Um... He looked really good. He was landing shots. He dropped Romero at different times. Romero dropped him. It was very back and forth. Okay. So I think we can agree that the first two rounds were close. Right? Very, in my opinion, very close. I wouldn't, if I had to judge that fight, I wouldn't have really known who won. I think that fight might be closer to a draw than anything. Um, based on the current scoring system. So here's the problem with it, right? Yoel goes out and, in my opinion, dominates the third round. So even if you gave the first two rounds to Paulo Costa... You give him a 10-9 and a 10-9. You, I don't think that by 
the current standards that they judged under that Yoel Romero's third round was dominant enough for a 10-8. It was probably a 10-9. So now you've got Costa up two rounds, two razor-close rounds, but Yoel wins the third pretty decisively, the most decisive round of the fight, in my opinion. And not only that, it's towards the end of the fight. And I think that the end of the fight should be... You, you, there should be more emphasis on what it's worth because that's when fatigue starts to kick in. That's when guys start to get tired. That's when technique starts to fall apart. That's when guys make mental errors or when they give up positions. So to be able to fight through that towards the end of a... I mean, if the 15-minute mark signifies the end of the fight, whoever is... If you're completely controlling the fight at that point, you know, we're getting closer to the hypothetical end. Like, you can see one guy fading. I think that should be worth more. So... Under the, under the current scoring system, I do not think Paulo Costa got robbed. But I do not think that Paulo Costa won the fight as a whole. I think that Yoel controlled the third round. I think that's the most important round of the fight. It was the most decisive round of the fight. And I think that if you're going to score rounds, the way that rounds should be scored is not 10-9. Like the idea that the first round and the third round the differential between the points is the same is ridiculous to me. I think what it's more like is like a scale, right? And you start when the fight starts, the scale's here. And as one guy starts to do something and implement his game plan, it goes like this. And if the other guy counters and starts to come back, it goes like this. So what you need is a scoring system that represents the differential between how much weight this guy has put on the scale and how much weight this guy has on his side of the scale, right? So I kind of think that the way to do it is you have like 10 total available points per round, and you could score it six to four, seven to three, five and a half to four and a half. I'm okay with all of this. Um, to me, that's just the way to do it, man. It just seems like it would give you more accurate representation of what's actually going on in the fight. And I think that if you were scoring that fight, if we were scoring that fight using those rules, I would want, even if you give the first two rounds to Costa, let's assume that you do, I would go five and a half, four and a half, five and a half, four and a half, so now you've got an 11, you've got an 11 to nine fight, but I think that, I mean, the third round for Romero might've been like seven to three, right? So now you've got, well, Romero was 16 and Paulo Costa only earned three points on top of his 11. So it's 16 to 14 Romero. I mean, I just think that he, as a whole, he won the fight, but he didn't do enough in the first and second round under the current scoring system to secure the victory. I got to pause this. I'll resume to talk about the coming and the men in one second, but uh, my computer is about to die. So I got to plug this motherfucker in. All right. So we wrap up this main event or this uh, fight of the night rather. And we move on to the co-main event between Nate Diaz and Anthony Pettis. And there's a lot of hype behind this fight. Nate Diaz has been out for three years. People are wondering, is there going to be octagon rust? Um, is he going to be able to deal with the flashy style of Anthony Pettis? Um, Who's going to be able to implement their game plan? You know, all these questions about these two stylistic matchups where you've got Anthony Pettis, who is very well, if he's working in space, he's one of the best fighters in the world. He's got an excellent submission game off his back. I think it's very underrated. Um, and Diaz just kind of went out and put the pressure on him. And this is what, this is what I said going into the fight. I think that Anthony Pettis is a guy who you can break his will a little bit in the octagon, man. And um, it's not like that just happened. It's not like Diaz just put him up against the cage and that happened. 
you really got a fucking glimpse into how good Nate Diaz's jiu-jitsu is on Saturday night when he fought Pettis. Because like I said, Pettis is so underappreciated off of his back. Um, he's got an excellent submission game. He's, got, he's very well-rounded. I mean, he, he, and Diaz just kind of sliced through his guard. I mean, he almost got stuck in a guillotine, but I never... I, like, as soon as Anthony Pettis put that guillotine on, I was like, good fucking luck catching Nate in that. Good luck finishing that motherfucker. Uh, Diaz sliced through his guard, took his back, and just put the fight up against the cage and turned it into the type of fight that you need to turn it into when you fight Anthony Pettis. Look, I understand that Diaz has great boxing, but Anthony Pettis has more tools available to him in the striking department that he uses better. So what do you do? Eliminate space. You negate the tools. You push it up against the fence. You make it dirty. You grind Pettis out, and you turn it into the kind of fight that you know Pettis struggles with. I thought that's exactly what Diaz did. I don't think that Diaz looked brilliant on the feet. I think he looked a little tired. I think that that might be a little bit of octagon rust. I think he probably just the adrenaline associated with walking out and fighting a guy like Pettis who's coming off all this hype after he knocks out Stephen Thompson. Um, It's a lot to take into consideration when you haven't done it for three years. Also fighting at 170 and Nate fights at 155 most of the time. I know he has fought at 70. Um, He looked great to me though. Consider, all things considered, he looked really good, and he had a really fucking smart game plan of just making the fight dirty. But that's how you beat Pettis. If you're fighting with Pettis in space, I mean, Wonderboy Thompson's one of the best people with space and distance in the UFC. Look what Pettis was able to do to him. Pettis is just a guy who you have to be patient with, you have to, and you have to consistently keep him pressed up against the cage, and you have to keep things in dirty boxing range because most of his knockouts are going to stem from things that happen at length. Happen at range, you know? So Diaz had a great game plan. I'm not going to lie. That fight did not really surprise me. I dropped 100 bucks on Nate Diaz as soon as the odds, as soon as they were even. I thought Diaz was going to be a bigger favorite. Um, I understand why he wasn't, but just stylistically, when you look at those two, first off, it's so hard to put Nate Diaz away. I thought the odds of Anthony Pettis landing something that would hurt Nate and actually end the fight were small. And I just didn't think that Pettis was going to be able to handle the pressure that and the pace that the D, the Diaz brothers are known for their cardio. I just didn't think that Pettis. It's not that I didn't think Pettis didn't have weapons or that he could end the fight. Like I thought there were definitely opportunities for Pettis and that he, he there would be some chances for him to win. I just didn't think he was going to be able to control distance the whole time because Nate's too fucking Nate's too tough. Even if you are landing clean shots on him, like you got to be able to maintain your distance. And I think that when you're hitting him with stuff and he's just walking through it, you just start going, "Fuck, man, what's it going to take?" And then you're up against a cage and you're fighting off it and all your energy is getting sapped out of you. And you go back into the striking exchanges and you're like, oh, well, what do I do if I miss him with the shot? And he starts pressing me again. It's, I mean, as much a mental game as it is a physical one. And I thought Diaz had a great game plan. He stuck to it and he went in and came out with a dominant decision after a three-year layoff. His last fight in the UFC was a loss to Conor McGregor. And now you got to start uh, – let's backtrack for one second. Um, I want to talk about what's probably next for Paulo Costa – uh, you might be talking about a title shot after a performance like that. I, I mean, I don't know. Yoel Romero is no fucking joke. Uh, I think Costa might end up challenging the winner of Whitaker and Adesanya. I really do. And uh, for Romero, man, I don't know. He's 42 years old. It's not like he looked bad in that fight. Like I said, I thought he won the fight as a whole. Um, I don't know what's going to happen with him, man. It's going to be interesting to see who he fights next. But for Nate Diaz... I think the choice is obvious. It's got to be Jorge Masvidal, especially considering the performances that they just had, and they're two of the, 
they've been in the they've both been in the game for so long, and they really will fight anybody, and they really do have that mentality. And they're two of the toughest motherfuckers, and they're two two very well-rounded fighters who I think for a long time were underappreciated, and they're now just starting to get like they're starting to reap the fruits of their labor. So to see them share the octagon together at a big event would be fucking awesome. I think that's the fight that you make. Uh, I wouldn't hate Nate versus Connor three. I think that's a great fight as well, but. Man, I don't know. I, 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 right now, in, with the current state of everything and the way that things have been going, I think Nate and Jorge is the fight to make. That fight is going to sell some fu- – that's going to put some asses in some seats. That's a great fucking fight. Um, so moving on to the main event, we got Stipe and DC. And DC comes out hot, right? And he's looking really good in the first round, and he's he takes Stipe down and – Here's what perplexed me, and I mean, DC himself talked about that, is he put Stipe down in the first round, and Stipe wasn't able to get back to his feet. He had a very hard time with it. And uh, you could hear his coaches yelling at DC in the corner in between rounds to stick to the fucking game plan, stick to the game plan, you know. And I believe, I, I think that DC's, like, post-fight analysis of what happened was very accurate. I think that D, Stipe was landing him with stuff, and it just wasn't really impacting him. So he didn't feel a threat, and... When it comes to hand speed and even the footwork and stuff, I thought DC had an advantage. But there was a moment, and I think I think it was the second round, where Stipe reversed position in the clinch and had DC up against the cage. And I saw DC look up at the clock, and I was like, what the fuck's that about? Um, I don't know if DC was putting a lot into his punches and it was just eventually wearing on him. I don't know. It just seemed like DC did start to slow down just a little bit in the third and then when Stipe came out in the fourth and made that adjustment to start ripping the body, with the, that left hook was fucking beautiful, by the way. The placement on it, the timing, the technique behind it, the power he was able to generate with it, like he was hurting DC bad with that. And uh, that's a testament to how making an adjustment and just finding one small opening, it's almost like, you know, you poke a hole in the dam and then other, everything else starts to, you know, fall apart and the dam just, it breaks, it falls through and the water comes crashing through. That's kind of what happened, right? Stipe found a hole, and he just kept working it. And then it opened everything else up, and before long, it was just an onslaught. And it enabled, it enabled Stipe to really implement his striking and utilize his range finally and his power and to land some combinations, you know? Um, it's not that DC looked bad in that fight. I do think he looked tired, which was, I mean, I've never seen him look that tired towards the end of the fight. And like he said, he kind of let off the pressure. I don't, I don't really know. It was, it was weird, but it was it was... DC fought very well, and you got to realize what a massive man Stipe is and how powerful Stipe is and, like, what a job it must be to try to keep him on the ground, you know? Who knows how much energy it was taken out of DC when he did take him down to hold him there. Um, it's not that he couldn't hold him there. It's just, was he going to be able to do that the whole entire fight without burning himself out? Especially because I thought Stipe was staying pretty relaxed on the ground, just kind of hanging out there, defending himself, controlling DC's posture. Thought he did well defending himself. Um, all in all, it was a great fight. And, man, DC could go a couple different directions now. I think that if he wanted an immediate rematch with Stipe, he could probably get it. Especially if John Jones is telling the truth about wanting to stay at 205. DC could retire and live very comfortably. There's nothing left that that man really has to accomplish in the UFC. Um, I think... I think John and Stipe could end up fighting. Like, there are a lot of things that have come off of this... This this title fight for the heavyweight championship that uh, there's a lot of different directions that things could go personally what i would like to see i feel like we've seen 
the best Daniel Cormier. You know, he, when he knocked out Stipe, what a moment. And he goes in and he fights well against him in a rematch. DC has just accomplished so much and has his hands in so many different things. Commentator for the UFC. He's got this detail show. He's a wrestling coach. I mean, his life is set up pretty well right now. And he's not a guy. And, I mean, in the heavyweight division, you do have to worry about getting – and DC got knocked out by John, you know. That's a knockout. And then he got knocked out by Stipe. And he's so intelligent in his understanding of MMA and the game. It's, it's irreplaceable. I think that he brings something to the UFC that no other fighter has ever quite transitioned into the role that he has quite as well. He's excellent. He has a, an understanding of every aspect of fighting from the professional side of it to the actual in, in the cage, you know, experience. He, he's, just, he's just a gift, man. I'm, I'm glad we have him. I don't want to see him. I don't want to see him continue to fight at heavyweight and fight guys with all these power in an effort. I don't think he's gonna. I think, I think you're probably going to see him maybe rematch Stipe, which I'm okay with. It's not like DC looked incompetent. Um, I wouldn't hate that, but if DC is going to fight again, I think his next fight should be his last. And unfortunately, I don't think it's going to be against John. I think what you're going to see is Stipe is either probably going to fight DC in a rematch, might rematch Ngannou, and, or he might fight John Jones. But I think DC's kind of only option is to fight Stipe at heavyweight again. I don't, I don't know if he's going to get a fight with John after that. But uh, regardless, if, if they scheduled it, I mean, I would obviously watch it. I just don't think it's going to happen, especially with Stipe holding the belt. I think, I think if you see a fight... I think if you see, I don't know. I don't even know if John Jones is going to want to move up to heavyweight. I'm just rambling now. Anyway, point is, Stipe looked great, reclaimed the world title. DC looked, he looked good in the fight. He just got overwhelmed a little bit. Stipe made a great adjustment. And uh, personally, I want to see DC walk away from it and leave everything that he's built for himself intact. Like I said, he's a brilliant mind. He adds so much to the game. Helps. He helps so much with like fans' understanding of things and Excellent commentator, great personality, great person. He's just, I mean, he's a gem of a human being from everything that you hear about him. I met him in person once. He was the nicest guy in the world. And uh, I just don't want to see him continue to get beat up when he still has so much to offer to the sport in so many different ways. Um, anyway, that kind of wraps the show up. I just wanted to do a quick podcast to talk about everything that happened in that fight because it was such an eventful night of fights and such a great night. So uh, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Drop a like, subscribe if you like the content. Keep updated with what we're releasing. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram at MMA.analysis. We're on Twitter under Mixed Martial and Er. Yeah, on Twitter. I don't really use it, though. I don't even know if I have any tweets on there. Uh, I'm on Facebook. Don't really. Instagram's. I, I think Instagram's the best one. You can just post it. It's a picture with a caption. Boom, you're done. Like it. Move on. Um, but, yeah, check us out. We're on iTunes. I also just got this thing put up on Google Play. So multiple ways for you guys to download it. And uh, thank you for tuning in. Bye-bye.